Oh my god. The people who are going to listen to this episode are going to have their heart skip beats when they listen to the things that you are saying because you are verbalizing a lot of internal dialogue that is never really spoken out loud. It's always just quiet inside of your mind. So I just, man, you're cool. like giving me chills throughout this entire thing. Welcome to the podcast, The Other Woman and the Wife, Susie. I met you on TikTok more than a year ago, actually. I think our history dates back to a year and a half ago. And you were one of the first people that I had met online who really engaged with me in the conversation in a meaningful way. And you actually were able to open up my own mind about my own thoughts about marriage and life and love and all of that. And I just want to tell you how grateful I am for you having the bravery and the courage that you had to even speak up in a public forum where other people could see and hear your thoughts and learn from you. Susie, can you get started just by giving us a little background on your personal experience with infidelity? So I was part, I was married and I had three children and I turned 40, I think it was, and we were part of a huge friendship group. And within that friendship group was a couple who we were friends with. And I tended to get on very well with the husband of that couple and the wife got on with my husband really well. So social events, that's what would happen. We'd go off and we'd talk and we'd chat. And, and I didn't really see it as a physical attraction because he came from the same part of the country as I did. So there's lots of familiarity and there wasn't, I was, I would be lying to myself and said there wasn't an attraction, but I couldn't work out what it was because physically I wasn't, that wasn't really my type. I wasn't really that bothered, but connective, connectively, it was amazing really from the start. It's like, well, you, you know, we'd like the same thing. Or what you thought was your type. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Cause it is my type now. <laughs> so it was like saying, you know, we'd like the same music. We like the same books. And then my, our other partners would be having a great time anyway. So it just looked okay. Everybody could see what was going on. It was really transparent. And then for my birthday, we went away as a big group, as you do. And we, it was without children and we got, we all got completely drunk all the time. It was like a student holiday. And then we being the type of people that we are, we took it a step further. And again, everybody knew it all came out. It was crazy. And we said, oh, it was a one-off, you know, it's just, just being ridiculous. We're drunk. We'd got a holiday book together and we were all going to a festival, a music festival. So we had to get back on track with each other. We were very at arm's length. And then we started to talk again, messaging just about life and about music and about Alan Watts, things that we loved, you know. And then 2014, we had another drunken account. So this is a year later. And after that, that all came out. Mm. Everybody found out about that because messages were discovered on phones. And it all blew up and it was hideous. And the, we were in a very small village. Everybody knew. And... I decided I was going to go away for a bit. I went away, felt terrible, was really anxious and came back and we didn't speak. We weren't speaking. The whole agreement was, this is ridiculous. We are not going to speak again. And so we didn't speak for a whole year, which was looking through my notebooks earlier and, and how that left me bereft. And I was spent a whole year analysing the relationship. Going, was it real? Was it not real? I don't really know what's happened. Trying to hate him and 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 it was just really difficult. And then... It got to 2015 and I went to see a fortune teller, which you'll think is crazy. And I brought it up to her and, she, and I said, you know, 
does my husband forgive me for what I did? And, and she said, forgive you for what? It was just a situation. It's fine. You've lanced that boil. You're absolutely fine. You can go on with your life. And if it will never happen, you've gone back to your life, he's gone back to his. So me being me, thought, oh, that's great. So we can carry on. We, maybe we could all be friends again. And I can be like an alcoholic and live with this attraction. It'll be absolutely fine. So inevitably, we got back to be friends because we were all in this massive group. And it was like, this is never going to happen again. Never. It's only been two stupid, drunken things. And... I decided, made a decision to, which is probably the biggest mistake that I made, was to try and put my partner's wife first. So whenever I thought of him, I would message her so that it was like a reminder of like, she belongs to her, you love her, you love your family, they love their family, let's just try and keep it like that. And we did really, really well. We did a whole year like that. And then my really close friend died in the December of 2016. So this is like the fourth, is it 2013, three years. And then it all just went a bit mad and I can't really explain. That's when I stepped, we stepped up, up into that sort of limerence type thing that everybody goes on about where it's crazy mm. and it loses all sense of reality. Mm -hmm. And I was bereaved, bereft and very, very upset. And he was the only one that could really talk to me about it and understand it. And he was only made kind of person who made time to do that. And so it all ignited again. And, and then sort of like the universe moved so that we were at events on our own. And I thought, I, you are kidding yourself if you think that you can live the rest of your life in a friendship with him and not be affected by that. And once my friend had died, mm -hmm. I did have this like revelation of, could you be that person in the old people's home, sat in the chair, looking back on your life, knowing that you didn't experience that man? Would you be okay with that? And after that, all the universe sort of conspired, if you say, and lots of things happened. And we eventually, in 2017, in the September, we were both living together. <laughs> it's mad. It just looking back, absolutely mad. It's interesting, though. It sounds like you were really trying to force yourself to resist the connection that you felt towards him. Was that effective at eliminating the connection you felt? No, not I mean, this, the problem happened was when we didn't talk to each other. I think men are much better than this. He just cut, cut it off. And he seemed really cold and not this sort of contemporary psycho, psycho bubble about narcissism. I portrayed him as a narcissist, you know, completely used me and tried to convince myself that I felt nothing and he used me and I hate him and I'm going to really focus on my family and that's what's important. But I knew that I still had that connection and, and, and at any time that I saw him, it was, it was like being, it was like being a bit like a schoolgirl. It was like completely filled with this overwhelming love, desire and, you know, Craziness. How how did you get past that feeling of being used? Because I then resorted to the fact that I was just going to have him as a friend. Because in terms of what we talked about, my, I, I lived with a husband that was emotionally remote, didn't talk about anything that wasn't funny. Don't have a see. I don't think I've ever had a serious conversation with him in my life. So had to have somebody who could talk to me about things that mattered to me. That was. That was what I was mourning a lot when we didn't talk as well. So I thought I could keep that as a being alcoholic 
and have that friendship and I'd be okay. I could handle, you know, I can handle it. Be fine. And I was, I thought I could. Yeah. I suppose I've been to the fortune teller and she told me, oh no, you're fine. You're fine. It's gone. I thought it's gone. A little bit of external reassurance yeah. is, uh, is helpful, you isn't could, it? You look, you're, you're constantly looking for signs all the time. And it was, in, it <laughs> oh, was interesting for us because we, had these we both said because we it was like what do you want to do do you want to leave and it was this point where we were both toing and froing about getting together or staying or whatever and then we chose these animals and we said if we see these particular animals anywhere then that's like a sign that it's okay so I thought I'll choose something really random like a flamingo and I chose a peacock and then lo and behold in the shops that year they were everywhere they were on you know stationery they were in garden ornaments they were on fabrics it was like this is really uh, christmas trees you know together two books side by side a flamingo and a peacock it's like this is insane and you're in this magical sort of time warp of your own of needing some sort of validation that what you're doing is okay because it just it's seen as so wrong by everybody else but it feels so right to the both of you. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I want to I want to touch on something that you and I have had a lot of interesting conversations about and it, as far as that that moral dilemma. What do you think that is the result of? Uh, well, that, I think for probably both you and I it's our Christian upbringing that was very strong growing up and that I think the whole attitude to sexuality within Christianity is is not positive experience. And I think you're constantly made to feel guilty for any desire or anything that you experience. And so you always want to be the good girl. You want to be the the righteous one. And, and having these sort of dark, des- desirable feelings just doesn't equate with the same thing. And I think I'd sort of left my faith behind quite a lot but still it's there you know reminding me of the biblical quotes and things that go with adultery and and all that kind of hell and damnation and and I still sometimes feel sort of not worried but you know upset that I have done that you know what I mean that it is adultery and it's not a relationship that is grounded in what other people would see as righteousness if you like which is so so fascinating to me because I'm like, wait, isn't a relationship just where you invest in each other and support each other? Like, so you're telling me that because it, it started in like this very deceitful manner, it, it no longer has validity mm-hmm. because it, I think that was one of the really challenging parts for me was I was like, but wait, I've been taught that this relationship should have no mm-hmm. validity. And then I was like, well, why wouldn't it if it really is just two people connecting and investing into one another? And like very specific, like you and I, I feel like we had a very similar experience where there was one unique person that we felt very compatible with, very drawn to, didn't understand why because we were already married to the person that we were supposed to be married to, you know? So the the moral dilemma stuff is is really hard and I get a lot of a lot of inquiries from women about how to move past these feelings like you've touched on too already, the feeling of being used, the feeling of your innate desire is not good enough and you should turn away from it and all of that. Do you have anything that you would like to say to women 
who are currently in that state of struggle? I'd say like, very similar to what you said is you have to look within yourself. You have to think about what your motives are, why you need this relationship, what it's bringing you and what it's giving to you. You also have to forgive yourself because it's a very human experience. And this is what I find is really problematic because you you know yourself as, as you, you've married Stan, that, that it's difficult to be able to celebrate that relationship, the wonderful things of that relationship, because it always from outside people, it will be tinged with this sort of stain of, of whatever they view it to be. And, and I think that that's really is one of the saddest things about, if you want to say adultery and affairs, each one is unique. Each one is made up of people that are unique. There is too much generalization about cheaters. Once a cheater, always a cheater. The only rhetoric you're getting is that you're going to lose them the way that you find them and God will never bring you someone else's husband. All this stuff is this horrendous negativity that is projected onto your relationship. That if you are brave enough to follow your heart and you do do that, you have to overcome all that. And it, that takes an, an enormous amount of emotional strength. And this is why I'm doing this today is because I don't feel I've, I've ever been able to stand up and go, I love him so much and it's okay to love him. You know, it might have hurt people. Mm -hmm. It might have changed the landscape of our families, but I love him. And, and, and our relationship is morally ethical to a point, you know what I mean? Even though we're not married, even though we're not really divorced yet. But we belong together for this chapter of our lives and we should be able to pursue it. Yeah, we didn't go about it in the best way, but how do you go about it? And this is the other thing that amazes me. Just leave, just leave those comments, just leave. It's like I was a mother of three children and yes, I financially had a job at the time where I could leave. I didn't really want to leave. Because I loved being part of a family and I still do, you know, still do love going out with them. And, you know, I only have to be around my husband for like half an hour and go, oh, that's why I'm not with you anymore. You really are irritating. <laughs> but, but, you know, we still have that ability to go out and go, go out for meals for like graduations and things like that. So we get on. And I just feel that you need to be able to have that pride in your relationship eventually. It needs to have a clean slate at some point where you're not carrying all that negativity of other people's judgment. And I think before I did end, yeah. before I did have an affair, if you like, I was that person. I was that judgmental person. I looked at women who'd had an affair. It's not necessarily men. Men I just thought were like weak, not very nice men. Women always had this sort of really strange thing that I projected onto them she's had an affair oh she she stole him she's she's like we you know she's a bit easy a bit slutty you know and then being that person that's done that I thought no they're not not everyone that's not the reason it happens people are human they fall in love what do you think is in it for them when they're judging other women when women are judging other women what do you think is it's, in it for the person who is doing it's fear-based it's completely fear-based because what I noticed about when I left my husband and embarked upon this new life, there were so women, so many women my age that were caught in relationships that were similar to mine that were just not satisfactory at all. And it frightened them that we'd gone against the status quo, that we'd actually done it. Because I think a lot of people thought about it, but we actually said, we're doing it. It was crazy. We're going to do it. And it shook everybody. And I think a lot of people then had to think about it. And that those that judged the most harshly, I think they were just frightened of it being them. 
frightened that they might feel like that, frightened that their partner might not want them anymore, frightened that their partner might have somebody else or, or be able to find something in somebody else that they weren't giving them. So I think a lot of the time the judgment comes from fear. I completely agree. I think that when I am in a place where I start to judge others, it's really a reflection of my own security within myself. And then realizing that like, oh, my story isn't theirs. Like just because their story turned out differently doesn't mean that I need to hate or despise or any of that. Like it serves literally no purpose other than me understanding why my insecurity exists anyways, Mm. you know, which like I feel like a lot of insecurities are the result of clinging to social social structures that are antiquated. I think, as a, you know, the you know, Barbie movie like, has shown us that women compare each to each other all the time and we are, we're encouraged to dislike each other. We're encouraged to compete for everything, every little thing we compete for and and we are not encouraged to, for the sisterhood. And then, and then when it is the sisterhood, it becomes this in, in sort of non-inclusive sisterhood that you can only be in it if you're like this or you're like that. So it, being a woman is really, really difficult and I think we are... And I think this is the thing that I struggle with for my situation because this was my friend. I have sort of gone against the sisterhood and I should be eternally banished as like the most awful friend in the universe. And I do feel like that sometimes. I do feel that that's who I am because I've gone against it. But I, I don't think I was thinking about that at the time. That wasn't what I was thinking about. I was just trying to cope with this overwhelming attraction and desire to be with experienced person and everything else just seemed a little bit more mm-hmm. not into the center of my field really. Yeah, absolutely. So you've touched a little bit on your is he's not he's not yet your ex husband, right? No, no. Well, but, but he's I aware of it. He is really, but we we just sort of like because it, we are both younger children of quite domineering mothers, so we can't make decisions very well, and we put things off that have a lot of paperwork and cost money. So for us, it's just a case of we need to do it, but we haven't done it, and I think that. But he's aware. Yeah, oh, he, he's yeah, aware. yeah, he knows. He's he's got a new partner, and he's really happy as well. I'm waiting for her to go. Come on, come on, hurry oh, up! He's gonna do this. If you are the other woman in your relationship and you love this podcast, you would love the Other Women Community. The Other Women Community is a membership program designed to help other women just like you reclaim their relationship with themselves and heal from their affair. We provide a safe and supportive environment for you to open up and talk about your experiences. We give you the tools and resources you need to grow into an authentic, empowered individual. If you're ready to take the next step in your healing journey, head on over to theotherwomanandthewife.com backslash community to learn more about the membership and all it has to offer. All right, let's jump back into the episode. So with that, I am wondering your perspective on how much honesty is necessary with betrayed parties. Right. Okay. This is this depends, you see, because my ex-husband didn't want, he didn't want to talk about it. He was all like, you're being brainwashed. You know, you're, this isn't you. This is, um, you know, I'm not, he, we, we would sit and I'd be going, but I'm in love with him. I'm in love with him. And he'd go, no, you're not. No, you're not. You know, you'll, you'll be all right. It'll, it'll finish. And then it just wouldn't talk about it. And and then we'd argue and, and it would be awful because we never argued. Terrible arguments with, with the children, you know, seeing some of it because they weren't used to it. It was really awful for them. 
I didn't go into any. Oh God, <laughs> it's so bad because because my husband's job is to sort of spy on people. If you like, he had my phone tapped and everything. So when I was sending these texts, he would read. He knew all about them. And he'd go, "Why are you sending that? Why are you sending that to him? Why have you sent that picture and, and all this sort of stuff?" And it was like, "Oh my God, you really do have access." To everything that I've got. So without me giving him any details, he had all the details. Emotionally, I couldn't talk to him about it because he'd shut it down. So I just wrote a very long letter explaining everything. So I thought, at least I have explained this to you from my perspective. If you don't want to write anything, and he didn't write anything back, and he didn't even acknowledge that he'd read it at the time. So that's what I was dealing with. But I think he, because he was from a broken home anyway, I think he shut down because he just wanted it all to stay together for the kids. He just wanted it to be. But I'd sort of made it impossible, really. And I feel that I wish I'd talked to him more. I wish I'd made him talk more, really. So it was... Can you make people talk, though, Susie, for real? We had a very interesting conversation after another of our friends died terribly for terribly young and we went to the funeral it was after I'd moved in with the aid and we'd we went to the funeral together because these are the first people that we knew as a couple for years and we went to the pub afterwards because I said I'm not really ready to go home let's go and have a drink and at that we had a very frank conversation then about I said to him I said I really really want you to experience what I'm experiencing with somebody else because our relationship isn't normal. It's too sibling-like. It's not normal. You know, it's great and we've been a great mom and dad, you know, but you've never held my hand. You've never put your arm around me. You've never said, you know, romantic things to me. It's been you've rubbed me on the head and wrestled with me and done all sorts of stupid things that you would do with your brother but and you never made me feel like a woman and I hope you meet somebody who instigates that in you who you want to do that with and I really wish that that and he said oh well I've messed everything up I said you haven't messed it up you know we still can operate as a family but I want you to find somebody that you really do love because we were brought together and within a year, I got pregnant, you see. This is why we got married, really, because I had what's called polycystic ovaries and was told I couldn't have babies. And so the first time we moved into this house, we went, oh, I don't need to use anything. First time, we got pregnant. So we had to make a decision. We were engaged, but oh. then we had to make this decision from being, we've only been together 18 months, to let's get married. We've got this baby coming. And it was a, a difficult journey, but we always made it work. But we always focused on the kids and we never focused on each other and did you guys focus on yourselves at all no I would say that we did it we we took on lots of house renovations and we did lots of things separately and we drank a lot at weekends to uh, fill the time in I think and we had lots of fun we had lots of laughs but we were never like a romantic you wouldn't go oh gosh they're so good together you know I wish I was like them and my kids would say that when I see you and Aid compared to you and Dad, the way he looks at you, Dad never looks at you like that. Dad never looks at you like that. And, and so they would say, I don't want a relationship like you and Dad. I want like a proper romantic relationship. It's like, made me think, <laughs> well, I'm not really showing them a good, yeah, I'm not really giving them a good impression of what it is to be married, you know. 
I think it is really important for children to see the type of relationship that has passion in it and not a negative type of passion, but like the type of passion where I just want to be around you night and day and and all of that. And it's not to say that you have to be around that person night and day, but there is something really, I'll say, educational to children when they see their parents happy inside of a relationship. And I think what it teaches them is that when they become adults, they also need to prioritize their Mm -hmm. own happiness. Definitely. And I think all all three of mine would say that we are now probably better parents, that now we're being loved, you know, that we love them better, more unconditionally and now that we are both being loved by other people, we are more accepting, better parents in that respect. We are quite hands-off parents, but they're all grown up now, really. But there's none of this, oh, you need to do this, you need to be this, you've got to get this grade, you've got to get that grade. It's like, are you happy? Just just be happy, as happy as you can, because that's so important. Do you think happiness is a choice? Ooh, that's really difficult. I know that's what the textbooks tell you, that happiness is a choice. It's like that thing about love yourself. Love yourself. You've got to love yourself. I found that really hard because I wasn't shown what that looks like. I wasn't really around many people that loved themselves either. So then when I came in a relationship with Aid, who does love himself in a really good way, not in like a arrogant way, a really lovely way, and he loved me, because he showed me how to love myself, I think I was able to do it a lot better than ever before because there was total acceptance. And so it was like, well, if you can accept me, I think I can accept me, you know? Oh, my God. The people who are going to listen to this episode are going to have their heart skip beats when they listen to the things that you are saying because you are verbalizing a lot of internal dialogue that is never really spoken out loud. It's always just quiet inside of your mind. So I just, man, you're like giving me chills throughout this entire thing. So I think that, I mean, I can't wait. I can't wait to see the response to this episode. (laughs) Anyways, back on track because you have a lot of good things. Can you tell me a little bit about how you spent your time investing yourself before the affair versus how you now spend your time investing into yourself? I would say, yeah, well, I would say that before the affair, I was constantly outward seeking. So I was, I worked a lot of hours. I was a teacher and I, I threw myself into that because I, I wanted to, I, w- I worked in the village where I lived. So I knew that I'd hear bad feedback if I did anything bad. So I just made sure I could be the best that I could possibly be. I'd got three kids all doing different hobbies so that it was all about them. And then I would do things like, the village panto and the village fate and be a real giver, community giver. Mm. After the affair, because I became a bit of a pariah, I dropped in my social status from being, oh, Mrs. Bessworth, you know, the teacher, she's amazing, to like, she's a whore. She's gone off with like this, <laughs> she's gone off with her best friend's husband. And it was just like, oh, God. And we sort of ran to the next village. So we lived about three miles away. And we lived in, we lived, we rented this cottage, which is so beautiful and wonderful. It's been like a saving grace. And it has like a a gate and a a wall. So as soon as you get through that gate, it's like you've entered your own universe. 
And because I lost a lot of friends, an awful lot of friends, and felt let down by the lack of support for me because the support obviously went to the people that were betrayed, I had to sort of really evaluate what I needed from life. And Ada and I just got everything from each other and it seemed quite insular, but at the same time, it felt amazing. It wasn't like I was seeking anymore. And I've still got my girls and, and my son and my mom that I still see and I have got friends that I do see that stayed, amazing friends that stayed constant all the way through that I can never, ever thank or be grateful enough for. But I don't really do enough for myself now because I just enjoy the presence of each other, you know, even if I'm just neurodiverging, like doing crossword or doing something on my phone, the fact that we're in the same room together, cuddled up, is, you know, as I often say to my kids, people climb mountains to feel what I feel in my lounge. <laughs> you know, the contentment that I finally feel that I hadn't felt for such a long time, I could feel in my lounge. Why do I need? Because my girls go, oh, God, man, you don't do anything. You need to go and do this. You need to go and do that. And it's like, well, partly I'm 50 and I'm thinking menopausal, so I don't want to do anything anyway. But what I get from just lying in the hammock in the garden or just sitting next to each other and having a cup of tea is what people climb mountain for. That euphoric, lovely contentedness is priceless, really. Oh, my God. You are a treasure. But I'm not saying it's always like that. There are times when I... Have, I was looking through. Oh, the, you mean you're yeah. part human too? Yeah, no, definitely. I was looking through my notebooks. There's so many times I've gone, you know, that song by Talking Heads, this is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful wife. You know, what am I doing? My kids are there. Oh, you know, what am I doing? What have I done? And it would always be times where we would argue about the families or things, not about us, but about machinations that had gone on in the background that had come into us, into our world. And then you would think, God, what have I done? And you, you have this free-falling feeling that everything is transient. Everything has just been blown up and there is no safety. And you're just choosing each other every day and having sometimes having the highest highs and the lowest lows. And, and the most time that you're low is when your children aren't happy. When your children aren't happy, there is nothing that will help you to get through that. So. My son, I would say, just to quickly touch on the kids, my son was probably the most remote, but he's always been remote. He's always been very independent. The girls, I've had them one at a time, each between the ages of 17 and 19, be vile, absolutely vile. So the first one, my daughter, who's amazing now, she just... Was horrid, absolutely horrid. Every, anything she could say, she did. Anything, anytime she could hurt me, she did. And then she'd be really loving. It was so Jekyll and Hyde. And then the youngest who I thought would never do it, she then, from the ages of 17 to 19, did exactly the same thing. Because for her, she'd had to grow up so quickly. I would, I, I, I have so many regrets about her. She had to grow up so quickly and she became so independent, so remote. And then she realised how I'd, tried to manipulate I did and I'll be honest I tried to manipulate them because I couldn't bear not to see them so I tried to normalize it like hyper normalization of this situation of mom has moved in with you know aid who's you know all their kids and everything and we're now living together it's fine it's absolutely fine and so because she was young she accepted it for the first few years and then suddenly it was like mom you were really wrong to do that 
we should have been able to be really mad at you and hate you for a certain amount of time. And I was like, but I couldn't have coped without having you in my life. If I'd had to sacrifice that, I'd have just imploded because it was just would have been, yeah. Do you think that your children are happier because they can see you happier? I think they've come to a realization that I am better. Yeah. And their dad is better. And that they, that we've done our very, very best to maintain as much normalcy as possible. We, we've supported them and everything. We've gone to things as parents together and got on so that they haven't had to pick and choose. I think they have a much better relationship with their dad. I like I like to say it like this, like for the first 15 years, I was like the sole parent because I was never there. I was at work, a horrendous amount of hours, and I did all that. So he's doing the second half that he puts on. But even then, you know, emotionally they always come to me and, and all that. So it is, but their relationship with their dad is so much more solid than I think it ever would have been if I'd have stayed at home because he would have chosen that hands-off parenting approach. Yeah. Susie, you have been one of the most enlightened guests I've had on the show and one of the most vulnerable. I don't know if it's because Kevin's not in the room. Maybe it is. But I want to thank you so much for sharing all that you have. Is there anything that you would like to share with listeners who are currently grappling with the decision to leave a marriage that they so badly thought they needed and wanted and would like to pursue a life, a, a more authentic life with their affair partner at their side. Aidan and I had this poem by Rumi and it was, there's a, there's a field out there beyond wrongdoing and right doing and I'll meet you there. And it's about having a space as a couple, if you're thinking of leaving, where you are completely honest with each other about how difficult it's going to be and that you can weather it together. And to really look at your marriage and because a lot of people run straight in and marry their affair partner and get married again and it's just like, well, that relationship's the same. You're not choosing each other. You've made a decision to just be together. So really think about what it is you want. Don't be too attached to it forever after you know it's it's a it's a right here right now you know there's that song by Siegfried because you're mine right now you know I, I spoil it because I start thinking about forever and you might not be here but there is that important thing that you're here right now right now you're really improving my life and if we don't make 10 15 years so what you know we've had this experience it's been amazing and to be kind to yourself you're not a horrible person you're not a cheater life you're not a once a cheater always a cheater you're a human being having a human experience and you are going to only be able to act as well as you can with whatever you've got within your emotional capacity so if you're not doing the best that you can you need to step back and look after yourself fit your own oxygen mask first I do say fit your own oxygen mask be the captain of your ship who who's driving it what do you need love yourself as much as you can but also just be kind, really kind to yourself. You're not a bad person. If you could deduce the statement, love yourself into just like two or three sentences, what do you think it is? Loving yourself is knowing that that 
person inside yourself is going to be with you forever. It's going to be the last voice that you hear when you're dying. It's going to be the, the only person that's there. You have to make sure that you say nice things to yourself if you can. Try and change the dialogue. Try and think about what's best for you. Put your, what is best. If, if you wouldn't give it to somebody else, why would you give it to yourself? So think about that. Think about. Oh, that is so good. If you wouldn't give it to somebody else, why would you give it to yourself? Mm. And if you wouldn't say it to somebody else, why would you say it to yourself? The same sort of thing. It's like just treat that person. And it's the inner child. It is the inner child. I think I did have had some hypnotherapy recently. It, was, it took me right back to seeing myself as a child. And it was so upsetting because, like, why do I talk to that child like that? Why do I want not good things for her? When she looks at me as a grown-up, why would she think, well, why do you want that for yourself? Why why, do, why are you so mean to yourself, you know? And, and, and to always bring it back to that, you are carrying around that little child who had all these hopes and dreams of what her life was going to be. And... <laughs> You are absolutely stunning. I love your ability to share. I really do. Overshare. <laughs> no, no. Are you kidding me? I mean, I asked for it, right? Like, I people are so scared of what not to do. So even when they're inclined, right? It's the whole resistance of desire. Yeah. People are bursting at the seams to share. But then they're like, oh, but I don't want to overshare. I don't want to like mm -hmm. trauma dump. I don't want to. And I'm like, why not? Yeah. Like once you get it off your chest, it actually makes living your life a lot easier. Definitely. A lot I think easier. what you're providing for women and men who are in these unspeakable relationships where they're not allowed to talk, talk to about to anybody, that they are made to feel shame and everything about all the things that are making them feel good. Having a space which is beyond right and wrong, which is a bit like the poem that said, where you can talk about it freely without judgment, to make a clear decision on what's best for you that's not motivated yeah. by fear and desire, that's just a real clarification of what you're feeling is so important. And I said, to and oh, anyone else, right? Yeah. Like one of the things that really bothered me during the, I'll say, the indecision in my affair was that everybody that I could talk to that I felt safe enough disclosing my, uh, what is it, transgressions to, it all seemed like they had a personal bias. Mm, yeah. Well, they all and want you to get back really together, don't they? They all want to see the healing of that primary relationship because it makes them I mean, feel but, more comfortable. Well, that's funny that you say that because it, in my indecision, right, like I ran to my parents for counsel. And when I say my parents, my parents who had started – as an affair. So they had their own personal bias. So I'm like sitting there trying to weigh these options of like, what am I supposed to do? And one, one night it just dawned on me that like, even going into like therapy for some people who are in the trenches of an affair, that's a very intimidating experience because it, you're dealing with people who are emotionally in a state looking to other people to tell them what to do. Mm -hmm. And they're looking at other people and thinking, you're going to tell me whether I'm allowed to do this or not. Yeah, but the thing is, this is what, because I did do therapy when I was in the big mess of it all. And I did gestalt therapy, which was really good. And it and it takes you into... Say that again. Gestalt kind of therapy? therapy. Gestalt. It sort of gestalt. takes you into the situation that you're obsessing over and you see it as an observer and you can see it for what it really is rather than what you think it is. 
and we had some amazing conversations. And, and I had to take my daughter to a cheer comp in, in Bournemouth. And I was in the middle of it all. And I suddenly, I'd had this awful time. Someone was ringing me every two minutes on the phone so that I, and then putting it down, really sort of toxic, like, oh my God, he's not coping. And I was in this hotel room. The next day I went and I went into the ocean and I just was looking out to sea and I just thought, I've got this. I have got this. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get that little house. I'm going to get some space. I'm going to move out. I don't care if he comes with me. I just need to figure this out for myself and I have got myself. And I don't think I've ever felt in my whole life as amazing and sure of myself as I did in that moment in time. And that was the beginning of me renting my house, leaving, sorting my kids out, buying furniture, just creating this space for me to go, okay, what do you want? Because you can't decide what you want while you're in the middle of it all people going what are you doing what do you want you know right. so you need to create a space I think like it's okay to be at a place where you can say I don't know yeah I don't I think don't you do know. know really I don't think you ever will it's like having children making the decision you'll it'll never be the right time to have a child never the right time to have an affair or leave it happens you have to find a way of navigating your way through it and protecting yourself and your children if they're involved and your spouse and, and trying to damage limitations as much as possible to get the best yeah. outcome so that you can yes. live with it ultimately. Yes, absolutely. Well, Susie, you've been a wealth of knowledge and compassion and empathy and kindness. And I cannot thank you enough for engaging with me in this conversation. Your support has been incredibly meaningful to me. As a woman who doesn't really, who never really grew up with women that I could talk to in this way, it's been really affirming to have other women in the world show up and be willing to dialogue about this with me. So thank you so very much. And I hope to have you on the podcast again oh, if you're willing. <laughs> that it's been amazing. It's been amazing. I said to my girls today, I said, if it helps one person, me putting my head above the parapet, and explaining my experience and appearing human, not appearing like a cheater, horrible person, bitch friend who, if I can appear as a human being, a flawed human being who fell in love and tried to make the best of it. And, you know, then that's worth it. Just one person. And I will remind me, remind me and you actually, because I think everything I do is a reminder to me. You're not trying to appear that way. You are that. Yeah. yeah. You know, you are that. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this podcast episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear your thoughts on it. If you've made it this far, you're likely someone who is invested in the journey of being the other woman. We understand that this can be a difficult and complex experience, which is why we offer guided coaching to help you heal and move forward. We encourage you to explore the links in the episode description or visit theotherwomanandthewife.com slash coaching to learn more about our exclusive coaching program and apply today. Thank you again for your support and we look forward to seeing you in the next episode.